in your Bible, the book of Genesis. And if you would turn to chapter number one, I'll give you a few minutes to find it. And we'll read some verses, okay? Genesis chapter one, we did an extended series several months ago, maybe a year ago, on the first eight chapters of Genesis, but we're going to look at it from a little different angle today. Stand with me as we read God's Word together, please. Genesis chapter 1, begin reading in verse number 26, Genesis 1 and 26. And God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And we call that the dominion mandate, the name for that, the dominion mandate. God mandated that man take dominion over everything in the creation. God put man at the top, if you will. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth, fill it up, literally, and subdue it, and have dominion again over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then in chapter 2, if you will, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make an helpmeet for him. Now, the word helpmeet literally means a helper who is meat, and the word old English word meat is appropriate. So you could read that like this. I will make an helper for him who is appropriate. And if you'll skip with me then down to verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and here's the text, shall a man leave his father and his mother, and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Thank you. You may be seated. I was reading something, I don't even remember what, some sort of news item this week earlier, and it said that February 7 through 14 is National Marriage Week. And so that puts us right in the middle of it. And then it said that today, February the 12th, is National Marriage Day. And so I thought, I haven't talked about marriage in a long time. I haven't preached a message, taught on the subject. And so it could not be a more appropriate time to do so here, two or three days before Valentine's Day and on National Marriage Day, why well, it certainly would be appropriate. And there's nothing more important that I could preach on, save your own salvation. 
next to your decision for the Lord Jesus Christ, next in importance and in priority is your decision to be married, to sustain your marriage, to continue a marriage. And so what I'm talking about is of critical importance to all of us. Now, today we hear that marriage is just a piece of paper. I don't know how many times I've read that or heard that. And pe- people have devalued marriage. Marriage, ah, it's just a piece of paper, somebody says. It's outdated. It is unnecessary. And so why we even mess with it anymore? If you love somebody and you want to spend time together, just move in together, do whatever you want. And marriage has been extremely devalued in the times in which we live. And that attitude toward marriage reflects a tragically wrong view of marriage. It's certainly not the biblical worldview of marriage. And it's even reflected in our weddings. I've noticed a major change in people's attitude toward weddings themselves. Now, the wedding is not marriage. It's this the ceremonial beginning of marriage. But even so, the way that we look at weddings has changed so dramatically during my ministry that um, it reflects deeper changes. For example, now, if you turn on your television, most nights there's a reality show, and it's the dress or something about the bride. And I've watched enough of them. It didn't take me but about eight minutes, I think it was. But but during that eight minutes, I could determine that uh, this philosophy is not the philosophy that we ought to be teaching from God's Word. And for example, it's all about the bride. This is her day, her moment. Boy, I'm going to offend somebody right out of the gate, I guess. But honey, it ain't all about the bride. Where does the Lord fit in this thing, huh? This is the Lord's institution. He instituted it. In fact, there's a very interesting thing here. If you will look down there in verse number 22, it says, after that the Lord created the woman, he brought her unto the man. It was God's idea, this thing of marriage. Uh, We face the bride and the groom, and we say, who giveth this woman to be married to this man? Well, on that day, the Lord said, I I do. I am the one who brings her. I created her, and the Lord himself brought uh, Eve there to the marriage altar that day. And it's really not about the dress. That's secondary. It's not about the reception. It's not about the bride even. Though we honor her, we, we obviously want to put a focus there. But it's about a relationship that is being established where a new family is being formed. What could be more important than that? We've separated weddings from sacred space. In the Catholic theology, a wedding has to be held in the church. And in order to move a wedding out of the church, at least it used to be, there had to be a special letter written from the, from the bishop to give the priest permission to hold a wedding anywhere other than in what was called sacred space. Because the idea is we don't want to separate marriage 
and family from the church. And the inception of it is so critically important. We want it to be in the house of God, in the presence of God and His witnesses. Psychology Today magazine a few years, uh, sometime back wrote this article. Now, I'm not, when I say I here, I'm quoting the author of the article. Quote, so many young people may assume that a beautiful wedding replete with bridesmaids, groomsmen, and a cake that costs more than most of us make in a week will secure a happily ever after ending. One recent wedding I attended, the author said, had a Disney theme replete with princess images and Disney songs supporting the bride as she walked down the aisle. Certainly that was just one more visible embrace of the happily ever after expectation that brides now share with their guests, end of quote. Sure, a wedding ought to be a joyful, joyful, one of the most joyful moments we ever experience in life, a joyful experience. But listen to me, if you're a Christian, even more than a joyful experience, we ought to work to make it a sacred experience a sacred, a holy moment in the life of this couple, a moment when a young man and a woman, but with God as the third party, and that's important, with God as the third party, we enter into a covenant relationship, a solemn, three-part, lifetime covenant together. This is marriage. This is God's design for your marriage. Let me go into that thought. That's my title this morning, God's Design for Your Marriage. And if you'll go there to verse 27 of chapter 1, we read it already, but let's look at it again. God made them in His image. The male is in God's image. And the female is in God's image. Both of them bear the image of God. Because you see, the image of God is not a physical thing. It is the spiritual and psychological and emotional and mental component of of a man or a woman. Note the time when marriage was instituted here in chapter 2 and verse 24, the first marriage. God instituted marriage shortly after creation. It is the oldest of our human institutions, and it's the most important, I might add, of all the institutions that God ordained. Shortly after creation, God held a garden wedding, and it was Him officiating, and it was a man and a woman standing there making their vows together. Notice it was before the fall. They were still in their innocency. Sin had not entered into the universe at that time. And He made them for marriage. Human beings are made for marriage. Their bodies are designed, male and female, for a physical union, a conjugal relationship, if you want to use the big terms. And in Genesis 2 and 24, we see the wonder of God's Word here. The reason that I just absolutely thrive on teaching and preaching the Word of God. It's just the most wonderful book, the most wonderful thing I've ever, I've ever experienced in my life. And so, here in one verse, 
in just one verse of Scripture, there's a world of truth about marriage. Actually, you could have a wonderful marriage and family life and never read but one verse of the Bible, and it would be Genesis 2 and 24. The thing is just brimming over with gospel and spiritual truth for anybody who will read it and think about it. Notice the leave and cleave words there, the leave and cleave principle we refer to. Christian counselors refer to leave and cleave principle. The leave and cleave principle, leave, the, the couple is to leave their parents. Physically, yeah, that's, that's best. And sometimes in some cultures, they've just added on another addition onto the house, and, 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 and that will work possibly and perhaps. But it's better if there's a little distance. I know some folks that their marriage is not going to make it unless they move to Atlanta or somewhere that far away. You know why? Because mom and dad just won't get out of it. And you're to leave mom and dad. You're to leave them physically. You're to leave them emotionally. You're to leave them spiritually. You are going out and you're becoming your own man and woman, united and forming a brand new family. And so the first thing is leave, leave. And parents, we need to know that too. We need to remember, it's not up to us any longer to give them advice and tell them about everything. Now, sometimes I want to, and all three of my kids are sitting here. Sometimes I want to, but I try to restrain myself. Now, if you ask me, I'll tell you. <laughs> I don't even charge for advice, to, but, but unless you come and ask me, I'm probably not going to say anything. You're not going to know how I feel about it because I, I believe in this passage of Scripture here. Leave and the second word is cleave. Notice what else he says there. He talks about being joined together. He talks about being, becoming one flesh, a conjugal union, we call it. Leave and cleave. And so we have God's design for marriage in one verse of Scripture. There are three vital truths here in this verse I want to show you today. Number one is marriage has to then be heterosexual. He talks about a man, that's a male. He talks about a wife, that's a female. And he talks about them coming together. And that eliminates, that eliminates, ladies and gentlemen, homosexual marriage. There is no such thing as gay marriage. Now, the Supreme Court can legalize it, and uh, the society can accept it. But I'm not here to represent the court, nor society or culture. I'm here to tell you what God, the author of this book and the creator of this world, said about marriage. And he said it is between a male and a female here that eliminates same-sex marriage. There's a second great truth. Marriage is not only heterosexual, marriage is monogamous. It's a man, notice there again, and a wife, one. That's in the singular. Monogamous means one man and one woman for life. A man and a woman, singular. There's just room for two people in a marriage, according to this verse. That means that eliminates adultery. 
That means you're not to have an affair. That eliminates um, concubines that they had in previous days where a man had a relationship with a woman, he, a kept woman on the side, they used to call it. It eliminates that. It eliminates polygamy. You can't have 12 wives. It's singular. One man, one woman. It's monogamous. And there's no open marriage, no swinging for the Christian. That's not an option. It's heterosexual. It's monogamous. One man and one woman. It's permanent, thirdly. They're to cleave. It's one flesh. One man, one woman for life. This is God's ideal. Now, I, I believe in that. In fact, my wife and I have been married, and uh, let's see, Saturday, a week from now, it will be 56 years. Isn't that amazing? And you know what? I still love her. You know what? I'd do it again in a skinny minute. In fact, I tell her every now and then, honey, you can leave me, but I'm going with you. <laughs> so we're in this forever, huh? Leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. That's what, this is God's design for marriage. Look in, again in chapter 2, verse 18. It's God's idea. He said that it's not good for this man to be alone. He needs he needs a wife. And then God brought the woman to the man in verse number 22. God's design for marriage, heterosexual, monogamous, permanent. This is God's plan for your marriage and for mine. Now let's talk about his purpose in marriage and go back to verse 28 of chapter 1. If you'll go back Genesis 1 and 28, it's multiply and replenish the earth, fill the earth. It is procreation, if we want to use the fancy term. Or it means get married and have a bunch of babies. Get married and have children. That's what God's Word says. Fill up the earth with children. That's the only command of God I know that we've done a pretty fair job on. But uh, even still, there's room. <laughs> and so when you get married, God's ideal is that you'll be able to have children. You'll have a family. Everybody can't. I understand that. But where possible, He wants you to do that. Now, we're violating that. We are violating that with the new ideas now about marriage in our culture. Do you know right now we have the lowest birth rate in the United States and in Europe, in Western, in Western culture, the lowest birth rate we've had probably since the beginning of the nation. We are down to such a point, we are not replenishing the people that are dying out. And if you don't think that has profound implications long-term for a culture, you need to think about it again. One of the reasons we're not replenishing our cultures is this thing of abortion. And you see, that's the direct violation of Genesis 1 and 28, where it says, abortion says, oh, no, don't replenish the earth. Get rid of that unwanted child. 
Now, not only is it the sin of murder, thou shalt not kill, it is also the sin of directly rebelling against what God said to have children. We've now smashed in America, and I know of no other term to use, we have smashed the image of God 63 million times in the last 51 or two years. Abortion is growing in South Carolina. You say, preacher, you talk about this a lot. Why do you talk about it all the time? Two or three years ago in South Carolina, I think we were down to about 3,000 abortions a year. You know what it is now? Since there's brilliant souls over here on our Supreme Court made their decision, it's just growing exponentially. Do you know right now that in South Carolina we're killing 1,000 babies per month? Per month. 12,000 this year. We're on a course for that. Those are DHEC figures. It's actually far worse than that because you can order these pills, as you well know, that that the morning after pill and that kind of thing. And so there are more, more children being aborted than even the statistics show. But we know of, we know of, these are, these are statistics filed with DHEC. We know about 1,000 babies a month. Uh, South Carolina is becoming what we call a destination abortion state, which means states around us have stricter laws than we do, so people now are coming to Columbia and Charleston and Greenville where there are Planned Parenthood clinics to get abortions and their cars have a Georgia license plate on it, for example. So this is a serious thing. See, people don't think of abortion as being a violation, a direct rebellion against the law of God of Genesis 1.28. We're to have children to replenish the earth. Social Security is about broke. You ought to be interested in that. You know what the rest of that story is? Would it be broke if there were 63 million wage earners contributing to it right now in America? You see, there are going to be consequences for violating God's laws. There are going to be consequences. We may not see them immediately. The crop doesn't come in today, but it will come in. Children so often in our culture now are viewed as inconvenient because people have such a hedonistic, pleasure-oriented worldview that children are a nuisance. Now, we're doing everything we can, those of us who care, to reverse that. Tuesday, the South Carolina House, the Judiciary Committee, voted out a wonderful bill that would offer great, great, great protection. We'd cut that down. There's some exceptions in it, but it's the only way to get anything passed. If we could pass that, and then we could move on and pass another one even stronger later on, perhaps. But uh, already there's major opposition coming out of the Senate and coming from other sources here in South Carolina. But God's purpose was for you to have children, to have a family. Go to Malachi chapter 2 in your Bible. I'll show you another purpose for marriage. That was one of them, and it's the one mentioned first. But in Malachi chapter number 2, 
Malachi's a little minor prophet book, one book. Go to Matthew if you don't know where it is and turn back one, okay? Go to Matthew and turn left. <laughs> and it'll be the next stop there. Malachi chapter number two. And in Malachi 2, let me read to you beginning here in verse 14. Yet you say, wherefore? And the people are questioning the prophet here. And the prophet says, because the Lord your God has been witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion. A second purpose for marriage, companionship the wife of thy covenant. Go down to verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. Circle the term putting away. That's divorce. And I know many of you are divorced, and I'm certainly not here to put more guilt on you or make you feel bad about that. But it's not God's original plan. He permitted it, but he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with the garment, saith the Lord of hosts, and therefore take heed to your spirit, your attitude, that you deal not treacherously with your wife or your husband, as the case may be. And so the second purpose for marriage is companionship. We need a companion. God made us so that we have a need for intimacy. We need closeness. We need somebody who is so close to us, that we can confide in, that we can love, and who will return our love to us, that we can love and be loved. God made us so that we need someone to be our helper. He said that here when He created Eve, I need to create man, this help me, this helper who is appropriate. God created us to need somebody who will support us, who will stand by us in those tough times, those times when our heart is broken, those times when there's, you know, when we've been betrayed or when we've been disappointed, when, when life really gets tough. Who is that person that's going to stand with you regardless? Well, that should be your husband or your wife, the closest relationship that you have on earth. You've left mom and dad. You're cleaving to this person, and we're there to support one another. I often quote Joseph Tan. Joseph is a Romanian preacher that I met in 1977, a brilliant, brilliant theologian, one of the smartest people I've ever known. And I heard Joseph preaching on marriage, and Joseph said, you know, I got married, and I didn't know how rough I was around the edges. He said, God gave me a wife, and you know what? She's, my, she's God's heavenly sandpaper. <laughs> Boy, I like that. He said, every time I turned around, she was rubbing on me. And she was rubbing off the rough edges. And I'm not the same man I, I, I used to be because God gave me my wife. And she not only supports me, she's my companion, but she's made me a better person. She's smoothed off the rough places. She's God's sandpaper. Now, are you the loving sandpaper? Are you seeking to make your mate better? 
Do you know you have more influence over your wife or husband, or you should have, than anybody else living on the planet? I know there's one lady, she can whisper in my ear and get things done from me that probably nobody else can. And you know what? She's been my sandpaper, and I've been hers too. We, have, we try to make each other better. We try to lift each other up and support each other and help each other, and, and, we, and we try to, to ennoble each other. That's why God gave us that mate, that companion. Let me show you another one in Ephesians chapter 5. To the New Testament, please. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, and it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ, in the same manner, compare yourself to Christ's love for the church and how He gave Himself for it. And notice the love there is agape love. It gives itself for the benefit of the loved one. And so as a husband, I'm to love my wife and I'm to give myself for her, to her. And then if you will go down to verse 33, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, God says to us, marriage is a living demonstration of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and He to us. Marriage, people ought to look at Norma and I, and they ought to be able to see, here is a man who loves his wife, and here is a wife who loves her husband. They will give themselves to and for each other. They're going to support each other. They're going to be loyal to each other no matter what. And it represents the same relationship that God's people have with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. After all, it says here that Christ is the heavenly groom, and we collectively, Christians, believers, are the bride of Jesus Christ. And so that analogy is there to help us understand our home, our family, should demonstrate to the community around us and to the unsaved world and to people who know us, they ought to be able to look at us and see the same relationship between my wife and myself as there is between Christ and His church. Now, that's the hardest one of all. That's the big one, isn't it? And yet, it, the whole last part of chapter 5 of Ephesians 5 there deals with that. So, picture a wedding. I'm standing here as I did just a week ago. And a bride and a groom come, and they stand before me, a young man and woman. And I picture that young man. He's usually over here on my left. And I look at him. Boy, he's dressed to the nines today. That guy who was so sloppy, he just looked like he'd been drug in. But boy, today, he is the picture. I mean, this is a big deal today. He's got a haircut. He took a shower. He shaved. He's got on a beautiful suit and a starch shirt. Boy, he just dressed to the nines. There he is. And that door opens up there. And here comes this beautiful bride dressed in this wonderful gown, beautiful white gown, 
representing purity. And she makes her way down the aisle. The people stand and they look at her. You know what I've seen over and over? I'll bet I've seen this 10 times throughout my life. I look over here at this guy. You know what, I, what I'll see? You probably can't see it from back there. He's all teared up. That door opens and that gal stands there in that white gown and his eyes fill up with tears. He is so moved. He is so overcome with love for her. And he's anticipating a whole life together. And she makes her way up here, and she stands here. Now, she pictures Jesus Christ. Or pardon me. He pictures Jesus Christ. She pictures the bride of Christ, the church, Ephesians 5.25 says. She pictures God's people. Hold on. Stop personalize it. She pictures you and me. And she stands here in that white dress. That dress is supposed to represent something, that she's pure. She's a virgin. She is clean and holy before God, the bride of God himself. And I see them stand here and they're always nervous and tense, as they should be. And they reach and they take each other's hand. And I see how tenderly and deeply they express their love for one another. Their lives are so intertwined already by the time they get to that. They live for each other. Not much else is very important. They stumble over the vows half the time because their mind is not on saying what I say, they are just so in love, so deeply entwined, intertwined with one another. And then they go and they establish their home, and they come together, and what happens? A few months, a year later, two years later, whatever it is, they announce there's going to be a baby born. There's going to be a baby and then you take that analogy over to the spiritual world. There's Christ, and there's His church. And you know what? Babies are born. Souls are saved. When the relationship of God's people is right with the heavenly groom, there's going to be reproduction. And when the bride and the groom, assuming they're healthy and so on, there's going to be children. There's going to be reproduction. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture. We don't think about that, I'm afraid. We read Ephesians 5 and just, okay, listen to me. The greatest purpose for which you have a home is to show to your friends and the community and the people that you know the relationship, the deep love that Jesus Christ has for His people a love that was so deep and so profound that he went to the cross and died for our sins. Now, if every family here could show that, boy, what a difference it would make. You know why America's in the trouble she's in? Right near the top of the list is we've forgotten God's design for family. We've forgotten it. We've put it aside. And so I give you a third point. First of all, God's design for your marriage. 
Secondly, God's purpose for your marriage, three of them. And then God, then the decline of marriage. That beautiful scene that I described of that bride and that groom, it happens less and less and less in America today. Couples wait longer. Average age of marriage in America is about 27 years now. Many of them cohabit, and so we have those rates skyrocketing now where people said we're going to live together, but we're not going to bother to be married. And there's just this rejection of what God's design is for marriage. Now, there's a parallel to that. There's a parallel. You see, marriage is in decline. Is it no wonder then that America is in decline? And every marriage, when I read the ceremony that I've used almost from the beginning of my ministry, there's a, there's a line in there. It's an important line. As goes the home, so goes the nation. As goes the home, so goes the nation. And so today we have a nation in decline, and we have family as an institution in severe decline. I believe Satan has made the destruction of the family either his top priority or one of his two or three top priorities. Satan wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy family life in America. And for the last 50 years or so, there's been a war on the family. I repeat that. There's been a war on the family. Your family is endangered. That war is promulgated by a progressive worldview as promoted, one, by the United States government. They're probably the worst promoters of an anti-family type of philosophy. But it's also carried out in education. It's carried out in the media. It's carried out entertainment. It's carried out through American corporations, not right now. And over and over and over, you'll see anti-family decisions being made. The greatest would be, of course, the legalization of abortion. And then you have all these other things. A couple of years ago, the, the Black Lives Matter arose, a movement. And they put up a website, and I went to that website, and now they've taken down that part of the website. There was so much opposition to it, but they stated as a as a stated goal of Black Lives Matter, our goal is to disrupt the nuclear family. To disrupt, to destroy, to put in disarray the nuclear family. Nuclear family meaning the nucleus of a husband and wife and then children. In fact, we hear so much about this woke stuff. The entire woke movement is hostile to everything biblical, and especially to family life. And so Satan is attacking our marriages. He is attacking your family. Satan is attacking the whole area of reproduction and sexuality. And so we now have legalized in the country same-sex marriage, but it can never be marriage because they, they can't come together in the relationship that God established 
that he calls marriage. We have the transgender movement now, an all-out attack on God's truth regarding sexuality. God made them male and female. A man in our congregation works for an organization that deals with hundreds and thousands of churches. And he said, you know, what is breaking my heart is so many churches now are, are, are capitulating. They're using these transgender pronouns in the communication with their own people in their churches. And so at every level, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a circular firing squad. It's a 360-degree problem. And it comes at us from every quarter of the culture in which we live. I'd rather preach on something else, but how can I not talk about it, folks? How can, how can a man who's committed to the preaching and the inerrancy of the Word of God stay silent when the foundation is crumbling? I have to talk about it. Because marriage is essential. And next to your relationship with the Lord Jesus, it is the most critically important thing in your life, your marriage and your family. I ask you to bow your head with me.